All right, and welcome to another edition of New Wine Table Talks live on Facebook. Uh, I'm Dr. Matt Farlow, and I'm excited for you to be joining us here today. We're going um, with kind of a, a, a interesting table talk. Um, if you've been paying attention to new wine tastings and also an upcoming new wine uncorked has been jumping into the realm of conspiracy theories and they swirl all around realities with JFK, uh, Princess Diana, the moon landing even. Uh, and then recently we've had uh, conspiracy theories dealing with things such as Pizzagate. Uh, if anyone knows about that in a gentleman going into an actual pizza parlor and opening fire thinking that it was uh, related to a sex trafficking ring. And then there's uh, talk about even a hoax with COVID uh, on YouTube. People have been interested in this thing called Plandemic, where it's this idea that uh, the whole idea behind COVID is a possible hoax with mask wearing and how to even uh, heal yourself from it. And then we have this thing called QAnon. And so yesterday or the day before on New Wine Tastings, uh, Dr. Metzger and uh, John Moorhead were involved with a talk dealing with QAnon. And so some people might not even know what QAnon is. And just a bit brief, I'm an amateur with John and I were talking about this earlier. Uh, I've gotten into it because dealing with the church and my in relations with uh, academia, this comes up quite a bit. Conspiracy theories and what is truth? We stand between the poles of Jesus, who is truth, and Pilate, who asks what is truth. And so uh, recently on NPR, there was a interview with Michael Martin, who hosted uh, with Travis View. And Travis said this about uh, Q, he hosts a podcast for Q Anonymous. And what he said was basically it's this movement. He said it's an elaborate conspiracy theory. And he even went as far as talking about domestic extremist movement that holds that the world is, is controlled by a satanic cabal of uh, pedophiles controlling everything through the likes of media, politics, and, and entertainment. And so that's just a brief uh, background. And, and on the New Wine Tastings, I, I suggest that you go back and watch that. That's on our YouTube page. And so before we go further, when this gets done from New Wine uh, Facebook page, go and like the page so that you'll be updated on all, all that. And then as well as go over to our YouTube page and subscribe so you'll be uh, notified when these get uploaded because like the new wine tastings, this was part of the predominant uh, discussion. And so I just wanted to start out with that and say, well, what is the, ask what is the church supposed to do with conspiracy theories? And so, uh, John, you have some interaction with this. Uh, you're the director of Multi-Faith Matters, as well as Evangelical Chapter of the Foundation for Religious Dip Dip Diplomacy. Whew, that's a mouthful. <laughs> so uh, in the tastings, uh, in the New Wine Tastings dialogue, you cautioned seeing Anon as uh, QAnon as a political cult or even cultish. So the question is why? And then a follow-up with that would be, could you even expand a little bit more on your understanding of QAnon and then why it's important to understand this kind of world or these theories for the church? Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to, to be here and have this conversation with uh, you and Paul. Uh, I've seen some writings uh, by evangelicals and by other journalists uh, describing QAnon, and at times they refer to it as a political cult. And during the discussion that we had previously in the previous uh, video discussion, I took exception to that and disagreed. Uh, my background, uh, part of it as an academic, is in the study of new religious movements or groups that evangelicals call cults. And as I look at QAnon, 
uh, I don't think that it meets those academic criteria to be defined as a new religious movement. It's not breaking away as a specific religious group from uh, a dominant religious tradition as a minority religious tradition in its own right. Um, and I, I think there are problems just using that cult label in general. It's considered pejorative. Uh, the term is very easily applied to groups and to people that we don't like, and then we stigmatize them, and it's very easy to demonize and dismiss. Uh, I do think that QAnon does have religious components to it, particularly when it's scooped up by evangelicals who then tend to add, for example, their own end times kind of speculations and twists to it. So I think it, to be accurate uh, academically and to the phenomenon itself and what's going on, I think we can say it, it's uh, uh, a, a social and internet and political phenomenon that can have religious components, but it's really not accurate to, to call it a new religious movement or a cult. Um, I think the second part you asked me was that why is it important for the church to understand the world in this regard? Um, you know, the church takes place in a context, in a historical and social and cultural context. Um, and I think we need to be discerning. We need to understand the times in which we live and we need to recognize what's going on with social and cultural and political movements like QAnon and be aware and be discerning and not get caught up in perpetuating things that are problematic and as we'll, I'm sure we'll uncover over the course of the conversation, have serious ramifications, not only politically, but otherwise. Yeah, and uh, with, with that, with the a new religious movement and this idea of QAnon, hopefully uh, we will get into unpacking um, the idea of eschatology. You brought that up, that came up in the new wine tastings and the study of end times and, and why that, or why it would matter for the church. And so I'm wondering if following up in the first, uh, because of these questions in your view, what is the significance of conspiracy theories though for the Christian church in general? Is there a significance with these? Oh yeah, I, I think so. There, there's a, this is just the latest form of conspiracy theory. Uh, you mentioned some of them in your introduction. One that continually comes across my radar as I do the work of inter, uh, multi-faith engagement is 9-11 uh, conspiracies. Uh, the idea that it wasn't uh, uh, terrorists who flew planes, but rather it was the United States government was responsible as a means of uh, creating permission, if you will, to go to war in the Middle East and these kinds of things. Uh, so there are a number of different kinds of conspiracies. When it comes to QAnon, this happens to be a far-right phenomenon that alleges that there's a left-wing secret conspiracy that's going on to take down America. And supposedly Donald Trump is waging a secret war against all of this. So it connects to uh, white evangelical support for Trump. Um, it also incorporates uh, some of our, some of evangelical Christianity's fa uh, favorite boogeymen, if you will, satanic ritual abuse. Um, over the course of evangelical history, there have been certain religious groups that we've latched onto as the ultimate evil other. Um, it's been Catholics, it's been Latter-day Saints or Mormons. Uh, witches, pagans, and, and Satanists. And so this is, in a sense, uh, a form of a revival of what went on in the 1980s with satanic ritual abuse and satanic panics, where there were allegations that this large underground secret network of Satanists were kidnapping children and ritually sacrificing them. Uh, it was investigated by the FBI, and they determined there was no evidence to support it. Even with that, there were a number of people who uh, suffered because of it. There were allegations against preschool teachers uh, and they uh, had to serve prison sentences based upon this false information. 
So these conspiracy theories are significant, uh, not only in the realm of politics, but in a whole host of areas and the impact people's lives. And my fear is that evangelicals are perpetuating these things and contributing to the negativity and the harm that they do in our society and to the church. Yeah, thank you for that. And that kind of goes along. And I want to be mindful for the viewers, because some of these things are going to elicit, hopefully, some questions and some comments that you might have. And so feel free, because uh, the last 10 minutes or so, we'll have a chance to go through your questions that you are able to post on Facebook in response to what comes up, because we want this to be interactive and engaging. Because like some of your work, if people uh, go over to Multifaith Matters and look at uh, their work there, which John uh, is a director of. Part of John, what you say in there in your rhetoric is you talk about the truth between us and them and tribalism and fear of the other. Uh, so I'm wondering if these conspiracy theories or these conspiracy groups that the evangelical church might partner with or even participate in, how do they taint then the evangelical Christian witness uh, with the distorted sense of purity uh, leading to Christian nationalism? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, human beings uh, are inherently tribalistic. That is, we have developed with a sense of uh, care and concern for our in-group and fear and defensiveness against out-groups. And it's very easy to, to develop new senses of what out-groups are. In this context, the in-group is Christianity, evangelicalism, uh, Christian America. That plays into the ideology of Christian nationalism. A large number of evangelicals uh, hold on to that ideological narrative, the idea that this is a Christian country founded by God, and that therefore the appropriate way to view the nation is you have the redeemed Christians, and we should be following a Christian course, and those who aren't with that program are problematic, and that facilitates that us versus them kind of tribalism. And so there are a number of different elements that are feeding into that tribalism for evangelicals. And all of that runs counter to the idea of not only loving God, but loving neighbor. The Christian is called to extend empathy and hospitality, to expand our moral circle of care, and to embrace the stranger and the foreigner and the other. And our absorption and belief in things like Christian nationalism and so on is is heightening the boundaries and barriers that are already existing between people. It's interesting that you bring on the idea of, uh, you know, the tribalism and fear uh, in nine, uh, 2018, the American Psychiatric, uh, Psych- Psychiatric Association released results of a national survey detailing that 39% of Americans feel more anxious nowadays uh, that they have in the past. And so if you get into Christian theology, there's quite a few Baltzar, Hansers Baltzar, a Catholic theologian writes on Christian anxiety. Uh, Kierkegaard wrote on uh, angst. And so there's a lot of angst with this. And so you can see how that might lead people into this tribalism, this need for the other that has like-minded views, uh, that looks like them, thinks like them. Uh, We talked about uh, the homogeneous uh, church divided by faith gets into that with ideas of racism and how, you you know, at the 11 o'clock hours, you have the most segregated uh, church. And so this goes into the culture of, of the Christian church or even the first century church that the apostle Paul wrote into. And, and uh, Paul, you were talking about this a little bit at the end of the new wine tastings. And you brought up this idea of the uh, Colossians uh, heresy. 
And so I'm wondering, uh, could you unpack this heresy? How does that relate? Because we want to tie this into the Bible. If it's got connections to the Bible, the idea of conspiracy theories. Uh, so what is the the heresy in which you were talking about? Could you explain it to the viewers and how is it relevant to today in this exact uh, discussion? Thanks, Matt. And it's great to be partnering with you and John uh, here at uh, New Wine Table Talks Live. Um, <clears throat> the Colossian heresy uh, was a very complex phenomenon. Uh, Various scholars address it. I've always appreciated F.F. Bruce, one of the great biblical scholars of a previous generation engaging it. Uh, and no doubt there were certain Jewish um, mythological dynamics to it, as well as pagan sources that went into this. And in no way, shape or form was he seeking nor am I seeking to be pejorative. We're just talking about origins for what came about with the development of what would have been called proto-Gnosticism around the time of the beginning of the uh, early church in the first century. Uh, it doesn't flourish perhaps until the second century AD with Gnosticism. Irenaeus, one of the great early church fathers, addressed Gnosticism at length in his uh, multi-set uh, volumes uh, related to against heresies. But um, all that being the case or being said, let's just say that F.F. Bruce and how he reflects upon the background context is correct. And that is there were these uh, figures, religious leaders that were um, bringing forth this particular take on quote unquote the gospel but it was really a distortion of the gospel for a conservative reading of Colossians. It's written by the apostle Paul from uh, his prison cell during his first imprisonment in Rome. And he's writing to this church in Asia Minor. He had not visited them, but he was very interested in their well-being. That is the church of Colossae. And uh, he knows about this heretical teaching, which we're calling the Colossian heresy surfacing. And I think there is some overlap. Uh, with what we're talking about with conspiracy theories and uh, abuse that can be generated. So, for example, um, these religious leaders who were coming into the church and presenting this quote-unquote good news, uh, they were talking about fullness, fullness of God, um, fullness in the heavenly realms. And Paul addresses that theme of fullness at length but says fullness is found in bodily form in Jesus, and we've been given fullness in him, Colossians 2, 9, and 10. But the key word is fullness, pleroma. Um, another uh, idea that surfaces in Colossians, and I'm going to come back to the fullness theme in a minute. Another theme that surfaces in Colossians is this kind of secret wisdom, hidden knowledge. And Paul will say in his writings that the, you know, the knowledge of God is revealed in Jesus Christ, that it is revealed in Jesus Christ. Um, he is the fullness of revelation. Uh, it is revealed in hiddenness, namely hiddenness in his flesh, but not outside of Christ. Um, all the wisdom of God is found in Jesus Christ. So it's revealed in hiddenness, to use Karl Barth and Martin Luther's language, 
but hidden in revelation, all revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And so Paul wants to say that it's made known. It's not hidden from knowledge of Christ. Rather, the hiddenness is revealed. And it's a real paradoxical kind of thought form. But Paul's saying there's not this kind of private secret wisdom that is only bound up with these gurus who have this kind of private insight. No, it's for the common person. And it's revealed in public history in Jesus Christ. And there were all these witnesses to his crucifixion in public, to his personal life in public. Even when he's standing before the Sanhedrin in his trial, he said, you know, what accusations are you bringing against me? You saw me every day in the, in the temple, sharing, speaking. He was healing in public. Jesus didn't hide from people. He brought it into the public square. The early church brought things into the public square. They were doing everything they did in public. It wasn't secret. They were not anonymous. It wasn't Q Anon. You knew who they were. I am Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. So Paul, we don't know these, these teachers who they were, but Paul says, you know, he's an apostle and, and talks about Jesus as the revelation of God in history, not secret outside of um, revelation in history, but the hiddenness is revealed in Christ. Uh, all the secret wisdom is found revealed in Jesus Christ, and we all have access to it. So what was going on, though, in the Colossian church is that these teachers, these false teachers, were saying that, you know, they had an inside track that no one else had, and you had to be connected to them. And it was really angel worship, as Paul talks about in Colossians 2, and a certain kind of asceticism that was, you know, bound up with beating the body. Uh, and it was harmful to the body. It wasn't what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 9 when he beats his body and makes it his slave. No, it's, it was really an abuse of the body uh, that he's talking about in Colossians 2. And by ascending to these heavenly realms where the fullness of God was found through angelic worship, that they were the mediators of God. And all of these planets, which were overseen by these angels, which were really, in Paul's mind, demons. Um, and they were using the law, a certain view of the law, um, to, to beat people down. It wasn't the law of Moses as such, but it was a distorted use of the law to shame people into submission to these demonic principalities and powers, which Paul says they were nailed to the cross. Um, when Jesus was nailed to the cross, this abusive use of the law was nailed to the cross. He brought an end to this. And yet these Colossian Christians were somehow being um, led astray and buying into this teaching that was about, you can have this insider's track if you bind yourself with these, these teachers who have this secret, hidden, superior knowledge. And the fullness of God is not in Jesus. It's in this heavenly realm outside of space and time with these angels that you worship, and they call you to abuse yourself, and they shame you with this. Now, again, how does that connect? Well, I think that what we can find with conspiracy theories is abusive um, teaching uh, that can easily lead to manipulation of people, abuse of people in a variety of ways. It can lead to certain kind of cultic leaders um, who uh, say it's all about themselves and they have the insider's track. And I think we have to watch out for those dynamics and how they might surface 
in different ways than the Colossian heresy, but there's still some similarities. And I don't know, John and Matt, if what I shared with you just now, uh, you could see connections possibly to even what goes on with QAnon. We talked about that at New Wine Tastings recently with Terry Maddenley, Paul Coughlin, Joe Carter. Uh, John, any thoughts before we uh, take it back to Matt for his thoughts on that? Yeah, I think to connect some dots directly to what we're talking about with QAnon here, I've had concerns for a while now. I try to be self-critical about my evangelical faith as a means of being the best kind of disciple I can be, trying to be the best for the body of Christ and help the body of Christ. So the, the criticism that I bring to evangelicalism is with the best intention. And as I look at evangelicalism, I think one of my concerns has been for years that there's a kind of a general pseudo-Gnosticism that I see in evangelicalism. We tend to find ourselves very narrowly in, in terms of doctrine, uh, rather than more holistically in terms of also recognizing what we do, practices, the emotions we have towards others. I, I think it's there's more to it. Evangelicalism, like other religious traditions, is a lived religion. And we tend to focus on, on the knowledge aspect of it. But beyond that, especially when it comes to the doctrine of salvation or soteriology, a lot of evangelicals uh, really hone in on that. And they say, you're, you're really not saved unless you can articulate a particular set of doctrines that they would view as essential. And so when someone's coming out of a new religious movement, like a former Latter-day Saint or Jehovah's Witness or what have you, the requirement is unless you deny everything you believed before and are able to articulate and confess a specific set of traditional Christian doctrines, uh, we won't recognize you as being genuinely redeemed. Well, that's really putting a lot of emphasis on knowledge, our insider knowledge as Christians. I, I tend to prefer a more uh, what I call doctrinal minimalism, uh, that one comes to faith in Christ uh, without too much doctrinal uh, knowledge associated with it. And over a process of time through discipleship, we come to grow in our knowledge uh, including doctrine and our relationship with God through Christ. I think in particular when it comes to how many evangelicals on a popular level look at an aspect of eschatology, last things, or, or what we would call end times. That's really where the secret knowledge comes in. Over the years, there have been a, a huge number of books uh, where they take the same biblical passages, uh, allegedly dealing with end times prophecy, and dots are connected to current events. One Christian writer called said that we as evangelicals love to play pin the tail on the Antichrist. And it was Hal Lindsey in the 1980s with his books and his films and others came. There was the Bible code. And it's the same kind of thing that there are these hidden prophetic messages in the biblical text and only alleged prophecy experts can help connect the dots. Well, other problems with that involve not only the process of the secret prophetic knowledge and interpretation, but also that we always get it wrong. I mean, how Lindsay got it wrong in the, the nations and countries and prophetic scenarios. And yet we never apologize and say we blew. We never go back self-critically. And we simply change those uh, things that we're applying our understanding of end times prophecy to. So it, it's really no surprise to me to see evangelicals grab onto QAnon and this idea of secret knowledge and then apply it and connect it to their uh, end time scenarios involving things like government conspiracies and one world government. So I, I do think we're practicing a form of pseudo-Gnosticism, at least, by participation in things like QAnon uh, end time conspiracies. And uh, thank you, John and Matt. I should just say uh, for the viewers, if they're not familiar with Gnosticism, I should have said, or I'm going to say now, 
uh, it comes from the, the, the Greek, word, Greek word gnosis uh, for knowledge. And again, as I said earlier, it was a private form of knowledge, often esoteric wisdom. Uh, you had to be an insider. Had uh, It was a, a form of spiritual elitism with knowledge. And I think to John's point uh, on uh, maximalism, not minimalism, you know, we tend to prize people who have a certain level of understanding. And while I think it's very important for us to have a rigorous biblical understanding, uh, we shouldn't have this kind of insider mentality of like, who is the really um, alert doctrinal person? I mean, watch your life and doctrine closely, Paul says, for you save yourself and your hearers. But we have to put it in the context of all of life. Watch your life and your doctrine. And I think that's what John's saying as a professor of doctrine, and I'm concerned for right teaching, I also have to guard against some kind of elitism based on, you know, higher levels of understanding and understand that it's for the common person, this uncommon God for the common person and the common people. And I appreciate John's point uh, about that. And for, and both of you brought this up, this idea of uh, a secret knowledge. And yet, isn't that the tension? Because within the church, uh, sometimes it's based on the personality of the leader in which that person gets promoted to the pulpit and is speaking from up front or at Christian universities. Uh, sometimes the dynamic teachers are not even the ones that are uh, have the experience or education behind them. I always bring up to the students that I teach, we have to live in this tension because the denial of knowledge is not a good thing because not I don't think any one of us would go to a heart surgeon or I had surgery on my ankle. Uh, I wouldn't have gone to someone who slept in a Holiday Inn Express and has done a ton of research on Google and really feels comfortable with this, you know, and maybe even has a master's degree. And yet sometimes, but is a dynamic person. Uh, I want the most qualified, the most experienced, the top notch surgeon, if they're going to be doing surgery on my heart or my, you know, for my foot. Uh, sometimes in the church, though, don't we allow, though, that well, we say that we have to have knowledge, don't we then tend to uh, allow the pendulum to swing so far to the other side, though, that experience or the dynamism of the personality uh, drives us to that person as opposed to education? So how do we then discern between um, elitism and knowledge is also, though, then in education where our leaders are? uh educated you know and at least have a knowledge that is able to lead then the church or the academy or both yeah if i could just respond to that uh it's, it's an important point i think you have on the one hand that we don't want to be uh expecting of people especially people who you know maybe their their skill set and even their spiritual gifting is not going to be in the realm of teaching or or in um, a certain form of wisdom, uh, they're still indispensable in, in the body of Christ. And I think we tend to prize teachers, prophetic voices, those more upfront, or those who have certain kinds of sign gifting more so than other people. And I, I think that uh, relates to John's concern. If I, if I understood John correctly, I think it relates to John's good concern earlier. Um, on the other hand, um, we have to guard against dismissing or demeaning 
knowledge uh, and biblical truth. And I think so often we have a, a form of experientialism, which that's not what John was talking about with experience and ritual tradition. He's talking about, let's think holistically, as I understand John. Mm-hmm. Um, but we can have an experientialism and a kind of personality cult phenomenon. And I think Paul, again, the apostle, balances this out so profoundly well in his swan song letter of Second Timothy in chapter three, where he talks about biblical truth. All scripture is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Verse 17, so that the person of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Right before that, he says to Timothy, you know, you know those from whom you learned it, and you know all about my teaching, my way of life, the things that happened to me, my persecutions that I suffered. And before that, he's talking about the false teachers that had come forth. Paul's not anonymous. Timothy knows him. Timothy knows his way of life. You know, Bonhoeffer says that the pastoral epistles, 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy, Titus, they don't say anything in their qualification for elders, he says, about the personality of the elder. Only does, does the elder faithfully discharge the duties of their ministry? So Paul says, look at my life. It's not anonymous. I don't hide, Timothy. You know my life. You know, I've lived it. He's modeling it holistically. Yes, biblical truth and also a truthful life. You know, James, you say God is one. Great. You, you can articulate God as one. The demons believe in trouble. Show me a faith that lives itself out in works. And I think it's a holistic experience that's a shared life. It's not anonymous. And so we as the church have a responsibility to be held accountable, to hold one another accountable, not to mock people for, let's say they're bound up with certain trajectories that might be going toward conspiracy theory, uh, theorizing. We need to have dialogue with people, open ourselves up to, to critique, sharing life on life with people, and, and to press one another, to sharpen one another, to really invite um, a search of truth that's holistic truth of life on life in God's word and knowing one another. So that's that's um, how I would respond to that, Matt. Yeah, and if, if I could piggyback just a little bit, Matt, uh, uh, on the anonymous aspect, I think is really important that Paul's talking about there. The amazing thing is uh, the internet is both a blessing and a tremendous curse. Uh, in our time, we have something uh, that's been called the democratization of authority and the democratization of knowledge. Um, it used to be that we would seek out people with the relevant training, education, expertise in certain areas, and uh, we would look to their expertise in that body of knowledge to help inform us in different areas in life. Now, the fascinating thing, you, you gentlemen know this, anybody with an internet access and a social media feed is uh, considered uh, an expert on any given topic. And so in the QAnon uh, forum, you've got this mysterious anonymous individual uh, making pronouncements of huge international and national political import. We don't know who this person is. We don't even know if they're legitimate. Are they allegedly connected? Are they a high-level government official? Or is it just some guy in his basement in his pajamas who's having fun posting crazy theories to see who's going to grab onto it? Um, so somehow we need to, to recognize that, that expertise, that education, that knowledge is important, and that we have a responsibility as discerning Christians to seek out and test the information. Not everything that's thrown out there on the internet uh, is reliable. 
I think that was a, a quote that I saw from uh, Abraham Lincoln once said that not everything on the internet's reliable. So we, do, we just need to make sure we double check that and, and are getting good information as we make our decisions. He, he created the internet, didn't he? That's right, that's right. <laughs> and Ben Franklin, you know, he said, God helps those who helps themselves. I mean, that's biblical as well, right? I think that's second opinions, one and three. Um, yeah, well, it, it again, so, but how again is the local pastor because, uh, Everyone saw, well, most people saw uh, the president of the United States going in front of a church and holding up a Bible. And so on one hand, shouldn't that be a celebration for Christians around the nation saying, look, the, the president of the United States is showing the importance, has the Bible publicly displaying uh, his I guess, affinity towards or, or liking because he's holding up a Bible in front of the church, you know, in the context of that, that vision right there, that seems to be something that Christians in America would be celebrating. But if you don't, uh, if you only look at it that way, that's the context says, yay. But if you look at the holistic picture, the, the pushing away of protesters and, and uh, tear gassing and things, and then his reaction to holding up the Bible, not even reading from it, but where was the uh, outcry or should there have been an outcry of folks who are in the religious right of those that are in the, the Christian church? Should they have said something about that? Because when we're talking about anonymous, it seems like a lot of the church leaders are anonymous in today's culture of uh, politics and right, wrong, red, blue, and the tribalism. Yeah, speaking of tribalism, uh, you know, John and I in our work with Multi-Faith Matters and elsewhere have talked, uh, have reflected a lot on uh, moral foundations, social psychology. And when the President of the United States holds up the Bible in front of a church, um, that for many conservatives, for conservative evangelicals, really uh, speaks to what is seen as a moral intuition of purity and loyalty. Uh, there's, there can be a sense of nostalgia for some, and it's like he's showing respect for our holy book. Uh, and that speaks to many people. And while certainly holding the Bible, more importantly, obeying the Bible, uh, you know, really um, hopefully speaks to me. Uh, I think there are things there that we should account for, even in terms of those very concerns that many conservative evangelicals embrace with that moral intuition, that tribal phenomenon of loyalty and purity that is more front and center for conservatives than often for liberals, according to a liberal social psychologist, Jonathan Haidt. Um, it was, I think, the Secretary of Defense who came up after or days later who said, I really shouldn't have been there for that photo op. And I think it was the, the chief military officer, um, Joint Chiefs of Staff, who also said, I, I think it was problematic that I was, was there and they weren't quite aware. And, and that was also something about loyalty to nation, uh, to our, our values as a nation and the like. Uh, but I, I think, you know, should a pastor be speaking to this? It's difficult in our very um, polarized cultural context and with pastors facing congregants who are often split on these various matters. And I think for us as evangelicals, you know, my hope would be that, you know, not to take 
pot shots at this political leader or that political leader. Well, let's, let's, let's further the conversation. Let's dialogue. You know, what do you think about the president having that Bible in front of the church like he did? You know, was that a good thing? What about the troops that were brought in and how, uh, as I understand it, dispersed this crowd that was peaceable? Um, and for this photo op, was that what it was for? Well, let's, let's discuss that openly to reflect on it in an inquisitive way. I think we should at least seek that out as Christians. And so often it's hard to do that today because we always think someone's got an angle on this. Are you trying to take a shot at the person I voted for, whether on the right or the left, et cetera? So, but that's very difficult to get at, but I think it's the slow, slow processing, the long journey, the hard journey of dialogue that we need to have in our congregations on complex issues like QAnon. Uh, and well, and this is, I think a, another issue though, is because some in the evangelical world or even outside of it would say that dialogue is just dialogue. You know, they would say all you ever do is just talk about things and whatever gets done, because uh, if a pastor can't uh, speak into whether or not uh, because it's a political issue, are they then going to be willing to speak into issues such as race, uh, such as gender, such as uh, uh, sexual issues? You know, because like we said in the beginning, and I think this is the tension, isn't it? Because the Apostle Paul was not anonymous. Jesus was not anonymous with their message. And in that message in the first century, what happened? It got them beaten and pulled out into the public square. Is that happening in today's church? And what would that look like? And so with your work, John, you do a lot with, uh, um, I think on your, your bio, you talk about paganism and atheism. And, and in reading through uh, philosophers and psychologists, a lot of times, if you read into like Carl Jung, he brings up the idea of a shadow, this dark side with us, that there's this uh, propensity towards evil that a lot of us don't even acknowledge within ourselves. And so someone outside of our realm of thought, our homogenous group, uh, is always going to be not just the other, but they are the enemy. So from a Christian standpoint, where uh, Professor Cornell West talks about love warriors who have come and really the only way to engage is through love. How is it, though, that one can not be anonymous and yet still engage uh, QAnon, uh, conspiracy theories that are talking about, you know, that the, the deep state is out to get President Trump and the religious right? Our conservative values are under fire once again. How is it that dialogue, though, is uh, um, rewarding and a step in the right direction? Yeah, I think a part of what's going on uh, is white evangelicalism is fearful of the changing social, cultural, and political order. Uh, we're now in a post-Christendom culture. The church is no longer viewed favorably. Barna's research indicates that the church is largely viewed through a political lens, and that's a very negative one, with the close association between white evangelicals and Trump. And so in this post-Christendom context, where we felt like our values, our country, to use the language of Christian nationalism, was under assault, there's fear that we're going to be persecuted and won't be able to practice our religion, all this fear has ramped up again, this tribalism, and therefore, when a figure like Trump comes along who knows how to, I'm fairly jaded politically, 
I think all politicians, uh, Democrats and Republicans alike, like to play their base and play to their base. Um, I interpreted the event with the Bible outside the church as a, a symbolic statement to the evangelical base. Uh, I thought it was somewhat um, comical that he didn't appear to know if the Bible was right side up or not and had to kind of look at it to make sure it was being held up properly. Um, so I'm kind of skeptical of the sincerity going along. But even granting that he was sincere, again, we're in a post-Christian culture. Christians and evangelicals in particular aren't the only ones in the public square who have and want a voice. We live in a time of pluralism when many minority traditions uh, want a voice in the public square. And they see evangelicals united with Trump trying to take those freedoms away. And so how, how should we respond? I think we, we evangelicals need to develop more of a, a public theology where we understand the issues that are involved and we're articulating through conversation and through relationships, not compromising our convictions, bringing those convictions, but also at the same time, sympathetically listening to the concerns of others and figuring out a way in which we can uh, all despite our strong differences at the end of the day, are going to work together and make whatever uh, compromises might be necessary so that we can all work together despite those differences for the common good. It's not easy, but I submit that that's going to be necessary once Trump is no longer in office. Uh, as evangelicals try and live in a post-Trump world, try and rehabilitate their image and how they engage the culture. And I, and I think further to what John was saying, you know, of course, uh, discourse is a key part of what makes us human. I mean, we, we communicate, we're communicating beings, uh, verbal and nonverbal cues, uh, listening, you know, and I think, you know, is being quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to be angry. Uh, I think it's very difficult, but as we're led by the spirit, the spirit bridles us. James talks about that as well with bridling the tongue. Uh, but that doesn't mean that dialogue is not important or discourse because James is writing about the tongue there. And I, I need to read scripture. I need to listen to other people engage scripture. And as John said, a public theology, you look at Abraham Lincoln, and we mentioned him earlier as the creator of the internet, at least John thought that, but uh, you know, you know, here's Abraham Lincoln, someone who hadn't had any formal training or any formal training of note, hardly had gone to, to public school was self-taught, but he read, he listened, he dialogued. He would, as a lawyer on the Illinois Prairie routes, he would go off and discuss with citizens and engage other lawyers and, you know, and even into the evening. And that shaped him to be such a great public theologian, even if his theology wasn't quite where we would be. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr. I mean, these are great figures with discourse. Now, it's not only discourse. King led the civil rights movement in nonviolence, civil disobedience, but always appealing to our greatest documents and saying we need to live into these documents of our founders. So discourse is a key part of it. And I think when people feel um, despised, when, they, when we don't treat people with respect, regardless of their view, if we call them stupid or disgusting or despicable, which was big in the last election, as Jonathan Haidt talks about, and we don't cultivate empathy, which is far more than sympathy, right? It's not looking down at people. Oh, I feel bad for you that you are who you are. No, it's a matter of saying, okay, what do I have to learn here? When we don't do that, when we don't listen, if someone who I don't agree with sends something to me, and again, more it's going to be in relationship. It's not just anyone who sends me something. It's mostly 
you know, all the more so with people I, I know uh, from diverse backgrounds, I need to try and engage with them as, as I'm in friendship with them or in dialogue with them uh, and not to despise, not to demean. If it's really, especially if it's really meant to build understanding, we're opening ourselves up to one another, life on life. Um, but I think if we don't do that, we will generate the conspiracies. We will generate the conspiracy theorists because wounded people wound others. And if people feel marginalized, and evangelicalism, going back to the Scopes trial, we were a marginalized community with the Scopes trial. And as George Marsden says in his book on fundamentalism and culture, you cannot overestimate the impact of the uh, Scopes monkey trial on evangelicalism. I think that's where all this take back America comes from. Jerry Falwell Sr., Jerry Falwell Jr., um, and, and a host of others, James Dobson, uh, Pat Robertson, and those are just some. I thank God for Carl F.H. Henry. I thank God for what he was about with the uneasy conscience of a modern fundamentalist. And we need people like that. Thank God for Francis Collins as an evangelical leader and Richard Mao and others who are about discourse. Uh, John M. Perkins, Dr. Perkins. Um, but we need to make sure we don't marginalize people and invite the discourse with people rather than see it as secretive, anonymous. Uh, what is my role? Do I mock people or do I invite people? Let's reason together. Let's share life together. That's key in terms of getting beyond this uh, phenomenon of the conspiracy theories. Yeah, and that's, uh, I think, one of the difficult things of following Jesus in 2020 is that uh, when you look at his role, when he had the ability, he could have called down a legion of uh, angels and an army of angels. And yet he never mocks. He calls out the sin for what it is. He, he speaks to people in a very authentic um, uh, way. He, he meets them where they're at. He receives them. And I wonder, though, in light of the conspiracies, the conspiracy theories, QAnon, if it's just a, a, a playing out of where the church has been, though, in this post-Christendom, John, you mentioned that, where people see the greatest conspiracy today is not the empty tomb, but the church itself. Uh, there is this anonymous feeling that the truth that you're being told is not the real truth that the church is trying to get at, that you go into the church or the church is just concerned about uh, your money, you know, and then you're following your likes now on social media so that the leader can grow, grow even more um, not notable uh, so that they can either get their own uh, astrodome, they can get their own jet plane. And so people are very skeptical. If you look, I think, with the conspiracy theories, you know, there's this younger generation that doesn't even need, and yet they are going deep into the deep web. If you know anything about uh, 4chan and 8chan, which uh, um, allow for such theories to become truth because it's all inundated. They're on there uh, uh, all day long. Uh, one of those channels was the one that videotaped, I mean, video live uh, the shooting in New Zealand with the going into the, temp the mosque. And so there's this world out there, though, that I wonder if the church is completely um, discarding because of its own lack of authenticity. You know, people see the church today as the greatest conspiracy. So what is it for people like us, you know, who love Jesus? Uh, what's the way forward, though, in light of where the church is at this post-Christendom? Okay, 
um, and also the conspiracy theories so that we don't disregard our neighbor? How is it that we step into this, want to be authentic with our faith in Jesus, not anonymous, not someone who says, I've never had to ask for forgiveness. And so I don't really need Jesus, you know, but to be authentic and say, yes, I need Jesus. He calls me to step into the, to the marketplace, but how am I supposed to do that? Uh, with all that's going on with all these other people that I see that call themselves Christian, but it doesn't seem that their life, the fruit of what they're doing goes with what the Bible's calling us to, to do, to still be uh, convicted of our faith, to have convictions and yet still to embrace so that grace and truth thing. So what is the way that the Christian in the 2020 does this? Uh, I don't pretend to have all the answers. I give you a few thoughts. I mean, we face a tremendous challenge in evangelicalism. We have this huge credibility problem and addressing it is not easy because we're not like the Catholic church. We don't have a Pope who can teach ex cathedra and disseminate a program of correction and new teaching to the church. Uh, evangelicalism is kind of like herding conspiracy holding cats. Um, and so we can only try and do the best in our local context. My concern for evangelicalism with QAnon and, and all these other things is not that we're going to be drowned by the floodwaters of conspiracy per se, but that we are contributing to those floodwaters and that we're going to drown ourselves and take the rest of, of culture with us. And so somehow we need to, and part of the problem is when you're fighting conspiracy theories, um, many times those who hold to the conspiracy theory will say, well, you wouldn't be offering the voice of criticism if you weren't a part of the conspiracy itself. I've run into that over the years as well. So it is very much uh, like being a critical voice in the wilderness. We have to encourage our, our brothers and sisters in Christ uh, to be more discerning, to do our homework, uh, to try and uh, seek out reliable sources that we can critique these things. Let me quickly recommend a couple of resources in the first conversation that we had on this topic, we, one of our guests was Paul T. Coughlin, and he wrote a book called Secrets, Plots, and Hidden Agendas. It's somewhat dated from 1999. He doesn't deal with QAnon because it didn't exist yet, but he covers things like 9-11, or, or excuse me, uh, various one world government conspiracies and the and anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. It's written specifically for evangelicals. I th still think it's a good background resource. The other one is one I found just very recently. I know I'm going to butcher his name, Jan Willem, and his last name is P-R-O-O-I-J-E-N, Proegen, maybe, uh, and it's called The Psychology of Conspiracy Theories. A short book, about 100 and some odd pages, uh, available at Amazon.com, very reasonably. I just picked it up, and he does, he does a great job as a social psychologist looking at the psychology of conspiracy theories, and he points out there it's not any specific kind of person. The basic thought processes that we all have uh, that lead us to other conclusions can also lead us to conspiracy theories. So we simply need to be self-critical and do a little analysis of, of where we are uh, as individuals and as the body of Christ. And uh, that might go at least a little way towards addressing things like QAnon. And uh, further to what John was saying, uh, you know, Matt, at New Wine, New Wineskins, we have this image that comes from the biblical imagery itself of you know, Jesus's new wine, the new wine of his life and his teaching needs to be poured into new wine skins. If it's poured into old wine skins, those skins will burst because they're brittle. And I think, you know, a, a posture, a heartbeat for us uh, at new wine should be, I hope it's true, um, that we're always being stretched. 
And I sometimes I hear in uh, Christian circles, those people over there, you know, man, are they screwed up? You know, those Christians or the church. And I go, you know, I love the 95 theses for many reasons that Luther wrote because and one of them is because he says at the outset, you know, when God calls us, he calls us to repent. That's at the very outset. And that's a daily repentance. And the very first beatitude in Matthew chapter five, five verse three is blessed are the poor in spirit. Or as John R.W. Stott says, blessed are the spiritually bankrupt. So I think there always has to be that humility, that hunger, that being willing to be stretched. Hey, if someone wants to take issue with my truth claims and it's a real open dialogical engagement, not a an hostility, but really it's inquisitive. Why should I be threatened by that? I mean, I, I want to be open to critique. You know, I do not think for a minute that the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is a conspiracy theory. I really believe that stuff. I'm open to engagement on that. I'm open to engagement with people who are civil, who are really inquisitive and are not mocking. Um, uh, and I would hope to be able to do that with them as well. And hopefully our lives are open to critique and we're not hiding uh, our lives from others. And so I think as the church, do we have a mindset that it, they have the problem or do we see whether it's conspiracy theory or not, that we're all um, involved and we all have to be people who are open to critique that we're not gonna be anonymous. We're not playing an anonymity. Uh, one of our friends, Tony Chris, who's going to be interviewed at New Wine Tastings over the coming weeks, uh, uh, shared a story once. I think it's in a book he wrote, but uh, he had shared it once with uh, me, and I think it's a powerful story. He was at a pub, and he was doing some reading, uh, might have been for a class at the seminary, and uh, the waitress said, you know, wow, Tony, you know, he, he was reading different books. And I think it might've been Brian McLaren's new kind of Christian and some others. And, and uh, she was just surprised, you know, Tony, you're not like those other people. And when, and then he said, no, I am those other people. He never wanted to somehow say he wasn't them. And I want to be changed. I want the church to be changed. I don't want to see myself as being the one who changes the church. I need to be changed with the church. Christ is the one who changes in the spirit. Are we open to being changed? Or are we going to play the anonymous card and say it's their problem? Because I see that as also anonymity. Um, well, we don't own up to the fact that we're all callous, that we're all complicit, we're all implicated in this matter. And Paul was always being willing to be stretched <laughs> as the least of the apostles. So as he calls himself. In, 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 in a uh, uh, age of power mongers you know it's interesting if people go back and so we've talked a lot about reading and the books that uh, john mentioned as well as some of the information that uh, paul that will be on we'll po post that on our new line uh, facebook page so don't worry about uh, the titles uh, you can always go back obviously the this will be on our page for the the recording in and of itself but reading it, it allows us to enter into the thoughts that have gone before us i think of uh, George Orwell, where he taught us about the corruption of power through the use of animals, you know, and this idea that uh, there is this this need to press into it authentically uh, with a bit of transparency. But that's scary for a lot of people, because that means that you have to be vulnerable. And all of the folks that you've mentioned, 
and that we've talked about Abraham Lincoln, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., uh, the Apostle Paul, um, all of Dr. Perkins, John Lewis, who just passed away. These folks that have gone before us and stood up, though, you look at their lives and what came about that. I mean, significant change. But I think I wonder if what's missing in today's church is the ethos of suffering. Uh, the willingness to suffer for the sake of the other, for the for our enemy. Um, that was the, the ethos of Jesus, that he stepped up to the cross, you know, uh, for those who beat him. And instead of condemning them, what did he say? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Uh, is that the life of the church today? And how does then forgiveness, you know, this will be the last thing that before uh, we, as we end our time, how does forgiveness play into the ethos of the church today in its reception of or denial of uh, conspiracy theories, as well as then the pushing forward the, the, the conspiracy of love that Jesus bled from the cross for the sake of the world. How is that uh, going to then lead the church? Is it even part of the church's emotions uh, uh, path forward? Or is the idea of forgiveness and loving the other uh one of the things that's missing in today's culture so that the cultural engagement of Christians is a conspiracy. Let me uh, share a quick thought. I got to wrap up here soon. Uh, I, one of my concerns about the evangelical church is that we crave association with power. And I think that's a big part of why uh, a lot of evangelicals, white evangelicals have been so closely associated with Trump. Again, it's a fear of a loss of cultural dominance, uh, the idea that this is a Christian nation and, and must remain so. Um, as I read the Gospels and read the New Testament, I see Jesus saying things like, uh, the one among you who's the greatest is the one who serves, uh, that we should seek uh, hospitality and empathy and care for others. Jesus himself models strength through weakness. He gives himself uh, completely over and dies the death on the cross. Um, I think, think we just need to get back in touch with the realities of our own faith tradition and rethink things. And if we can do that and embrace service to others and neighborliness and so on, perhaps that can have a transformative effect for us so that we can embrace things like forgiveness of others. Well, it's a, it's a huge challenge, isn't it? You know, you mentioned John Lewis, you mentioned MLK, you mentioned uh, Perkins, you mentioned King, you mentioned Lincoln, you mentioned the Apostle Paul. I mean, and, you know, we could, we could think of uh, going all the way back to the ancient scriptures with Queen Esther <laughs> and, and others, Mary, Jesus's mother, and, uh, and like, but suffering, uh, suffering is a key part. And will I suffer the other's existence? Will I suffer the person who I don't agree with and who doesn't agree with me? And the Church of Philippi was a church where they didn't get along and they weren't considering others better than themselves. And Paul says, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like mine. And he goes on to say, have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who really did put others ahead of himself. And I think the more we're secure in Christ's love, it's a barometer to me. I'm willing to put myself in insecure situations to the extent I'm not secure in Christ. I won't put myself in insecure situations. I don't mean by that putting oneself in a place of being abused. Jesus often got out of context. Um, only when it really came time to suffer 
rightly for the right purpose at the right time did he enter into that. So it's not just go out and try and be abused. But I think it's a matter of, am I willing to, to connect with people who I don't agree with and who don't agree with me, we don't think alike, uh, you know, neighborhoods are often strangerhood. Uh, and it's not associated with people, we want to associate with people who are like us and who like us. And uh, that's not what the kingdom of God is about. And I think we really need to press in to this reality of, because I think conspiracy theories play out with our culture wars and our uh, moving further and further away from one another into our select tribes. And it's going to be the church's calling so that we're not a conspiracy, that we're not fake news, that we're actually living it out by loving our neighbor and our enemy as ourselves. And God help us to do that because it's costly, but that's where we need to go. That is not an add-on. That's essential. Yeah. And so we appreciate you, uh, our viewing audience, joining us as well uh, as those that are going to be watching this as the recording. Um, we suggest that uh, you look on our Facebook page because we will put up those list of resources for you to step into this engagement. Most importantly, though, we uh, our heart is, is that you don't fall into conspiracy, that you are not worthy and that you are not loved because that's what Jesus's whole coming to earth was all about and stepping into our skin was so that each one of us understands truth and the truth of your being and the truth of you being the beloved. And once we are able to accept and receive that, then we can step into the lives of those around us, whether we see them as enemy or we see them as neighbor. Ultimately, the more we step into the love of Christ, we start to see them as me. They are in need. And so I appreciate and thank John. I thank Paul on behalf of New Wine uh, Table Talks. Thank you so very much for joining us. The church moving forward is going to be our discussion next week, Thursday, 3 p.m. Uh, I'll put the book up that we're going to be discussing, uh, Exploring Ecclesiology, and it'll be our discussion for next Thursday. Thank you again so much for joining us. YouTube uh New Wine, New Wineskins, we'll have this video up as well as our Facebook page. You can find us at on Twitter, NWNWS, as well as on Instagram. Again, on behalf of John and Paul, I'm Matt Farlow. This is New Wine Table Talks. We'll see you on the flip side.